Well, happy Easter, everybody. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Brent. Uh, Costco, Costco, Costco. Uh, that's what you get when you come here. Hey, um, we're glad that you're here. I, I should take time to mention that uh, he did survive the fall, that he actually got away that night. They still haven't caught him. So anyways, people are like, what happened to that guy? He's all right somewhere. He's probably hurting somewhere, but that's all right. Um, excited that you're here. Thanks for, I know there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of places you could be on Easter morning, a lot of churches doing their thing, and, and we're glad that you would spend it with us. Easter's an interesting, uh, one of my, I mean, obviously it's my favorite. I'm a pastor, so I have to say that, but um, it, it really is like, it, it is the, like the best holiday, and, and it celebra- it's so unique because Easter celebrates not like Christianity as a whole. In fact, Christianity as a whole is the only real major religion uh, that gets its source from an event, not a collection of teachings. Uh, you can't say the same thing about Judaism, Islam, or in, in Buddhism or anything like that. All of those are, are centralized around kind of like these teachings and this thing or this person who lived or whatever. But Christianity centers around an event. In, in other words, one day there wasn't a church, something happened one day, and then there was after that. That's the explosive nature of Easter. It celebrates the resurrection of Christianity. It is not, listen, Easter is not Christianity Awareness Week. It's not, we don't need a march. We don't need a month. We don't need anything like that. It's, it's about something that Christians or a, a group of people believe actually happened in history. And when you stop and think about it, it really is kind of extraordinary because um, the event itself, what we're celebrating is is like, it's so different. And, and, and yet we have sometimes become so familiar to it, become numb to the uniqueness of it. In fact, we read through Matthew chapter 28 on the screen in between the second song. Um, so the whole chapter was being read. And in there, there's something that you probably read through and have, have read through before. And it's part of the Easter story and you've just never recognized it. Remember when Jesus uh, finally meets Mary and Martha or Mary and, and the people who've gone up, they, they go up with bags of, of supplies to go um, like burial supplies. And the and, you're like, well, why? He was already dead. Well, yeah, but they knew that a man had done the job. A man had done the job in terms of, and they're like, well, we got to go fix that. So they, they literally, this is, I'm serious. I'm not lying. They grab the supplies. They go up to go, you know, fix him three days after. They wouldn't do it on Saturday because that's Sabbath day. So they go on Sunday the next day and, and they go up to do this. And then the, the tomb's empty. And then, and then the angel tells them, you know, go to Jerusalem and tell all the guys. And, and then Jesus appears. And, and then he says something to them. Do you remember what he said to them? Like what, if you had died in front of, like, in front of witnesses, and three days later, risen from the dead to appear to them. What profound statement. What, like, extraordinary, amazing explanation would, would you have, uh, will the resurrected Jesus have to mark this historic moment? Chapter 28, verse 9. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Ta-da, he said. <laughs> right? Which obviously is not true. That's me making this up. Here's the real, and I'm serious. This is the real thing. Here's what he says. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Greetings. One word, super simple, the most informal. Hey, what's up? That's the type of thing. That's the uniqueness. Like we, we, we forget sometimes the extraordinary nature of the resurrection. And, and we, we bypass this idea that Jesus basically says the modern day equivalent of, Hey, what's happening? You know, that's his comments to these people. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. 
And, and we forget every once in a while, I mean, it, it's good once a year to come back and be like, you know what, this thing really centers around the fact that we believe in somebody who didn't stay dead. Um, and it was, it's, it's a ridiculous, far out there kind of idea. And for us to think that it wasn't ridiculous and far out for them back in that day, it's not true. Nobody expected Jesus to raise from the dead. I mean, yeah, we can read through the gospel accounts now. We can kind of see periods where Jesus would say, I'm going to destroy this temple and then I'm going to rebuild it and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And, uh, and then he, in, in code, they, they talk about how Jesus was talking about himself, not the actual physical temple. Um, and, and so now we're like, I don't know how the disciples missed it. But in that moment, we, 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 we give ourselves too much credit to think that we would have seen it. They, did, they never expected it. They're not, they're not super gullible for us to operate in modern society. I can't believe those people are so gullible. That's really just like modern day bigotry or modern day like this, this idea that we're so much smarter than they are. Uh, but nobody expected a risen body because dead people typically stay dead. I mean, that's how this kind of process works. Nobody expected nobody. When they looked in the empty tomb, nobody said, he's alive. I knew it. You know what they said? Somebody stole the body, which is exactly what you would say if you did not believe that somebody was going to rise from the dead. So uh, the whole thing centers around this idea, um, and the whole, really, Christianity centers around this idea. Paul would talk about it and say that without the resurrection, uh, literally all of our entire faith, if Christ is still dead, then you are, so are you in your faith, and any effort you have to connect with God. It's basically the bottom piece of the Jenga pile when there's only one left, and you remove that, the whole thing comes crashing down, at least according to Paul. And so we live as Christians in, a, in, a area, in, in an era of two different types of categories. We operate with a sense of belief and a sense of wonder. We operate with a sense of belief, and we, 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 every year we gather together, and we, we stand in wonder at the, um, the nature of this event. Or you come because somebody brought you here, bribed you here, told you there's tacos afterwards, they lied to you, uh, and you stand here and you think, I wonder how people can believe. <laughs> so I'm either in belief and wonder, uh, or I go, wow, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's far out there. It's ridiculous. It's, it's a ridiculous assertion. I can get on board with somebody who we would say that Jesus was this fantastic teacher who, who advanced human consciousness and telling people that um, there's a God out there who loves them and asked them to love one another. Um, that was pretty new and, and new concept, and I can appreciate that, and I I don't know why we can't build our life around the positive teachings of Jesus. Why do we have to? Why, why is the resurrection piece so mandatory for all of this? And by the way, if I'm a skeptic, I'm probably looking at this going, why would you build, why would you make the foundation of your faith or the foundation of your religion based on something so non-scientific and you're not trying to be irreverent, what you're basically saying is, uh, right, scientific stuff is um, things that can be proven, uh, things that are repeatable and observable. And anytime you deal with history, uh, nothing in history is observable and repeatable. Everything, it's a completely different category. With history, all you can try and do, you cannot prove that anything happened in, in the past. All you can do is say, well, the evidence would suggest, based on kind of some of the other things, that this is the best possible option moving forward. Let me give you an example, real practical example. This is just a kind of, let's, let's play a mind game together. Tomorrow, if you went to work and said, dude, I went and checked out this church yesterday. It meets in an old abandoned theater. It's called East Lake. And your friend who's a skeptic knows you too well, says, not you. I mean, <laughs> you didn't go there. And you're like, yeah, no, I did. And you're like, no, nah. they're like, no, nah, you didn't. You're like, yeah, it's, they got like dolphins out front. And it was like a weird, creepy bear. And it's an old theater. And I haven't been there since Star Wars played. And uh, yeah, it, it was, it was fine. And they're like, you, just because you know where it is, doesn't mean that you went there. And you're like, I totally went there here. And you, you look around the office for somebody who went to the church with you, like, cause you work in a big office and you're like, look at, go ask Andrew, go ask Shady Andrew. Cause everybody has a Shady Andrew they work with. And, 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 and Shady, Andrew's Shady cause Here's the problem with Andrew is you could pay him a couple bucks and he'll tell you anything, right? And so how do I know that you didn't go to Andrew prior to coming and be like, hey, here's five bucks. 
Brent's going to come over here and ask you if I went to church, would you just say yes? That'd be great. Um, so that, all of a sudden, that one's out of there. And you're like, okay, okay, fine, fine. I have a program. Listen, I have a program in my car. I went to, I went to Eastlake yesterday. It's, I have a program. Ask Andrew. Um, and they'd be like, well, I mean, the programs, they recycle these things. These, this was not unique for Easter. You could have got this any time in the last six months. Uh, it does prove, that, because there's a picture of Brent with more than three kids, um, that, that you have been there more recently than six months ago. But that doesn't prove anything about yesterday, right? All of these things can go to, to, to lead us to be like, well, it's really, really hard to prove that something actually happened. All you can really do is go, okay, well, based on the evidence, based on the fact that Andrew can vouch for you, based on the fact that um, you have a program, or, and, and the last thing would be like, I know what he talked about. I know what he talked about. I mean, he talked really fast, but I can kind of get the gist of what he was sort of talking about. It's not really that impressive because it's Easter. Everybody knows what pastor's supposed to talk about. So there's so many things, but based on, okay, the fact that you have a program, Andrew kind of can vouch for you, even though he's shady Andrew, um, and uh, even though you can kind of get the gist of what he was talking about, the best explanation would be, okay, I guess there's a good chance, a more likely than not chance that you were actually there. That's the same thing we have to do when we approach this. And the same thing I do every Easter. Listen, my Easter messages like really don't change all that much. If you came last Easter and you're like, this sounds a lot like last Easter. Yep, that's what you get when you come to Easter at Eastlake, okay? We're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the probability of it uh, and, and, and the, uh, the, the, because, because it's so central to our faith because we cannot get around this any other way. So uh, every year it feels like I take one objection to uh, Christianity or one thing that I feel like is like uh, one of those proofs or evidence towards the positive uh, affirmation that a resurrection actually occurred. And this year what I want to do is I want to attach or or pull away one objection, uh, the results of uh, a, a belief or a statement that comes across like this. The whole thing of the resurrection is a myth. Listen, I'm not anti-Christian, but the, you heard this in like school or you read some book somewhere or some friend who's really smart and smarter than you said, it's a myth. Here's what happened. It results from me- multiple decades of oral transmission that evolved over time to fit the agenda of its adherents. Those who would benefit of this idea. In fact, in, in other words, um, there were some people who, yes, there was a historical Jesus. Yeah, he had a bunch of followers. And then when he died, they're like, they were lost. They were like, well, what do we do? Like, we invested our whole life savings, basically. We gave up everything that we knew to follow this Jewish rabbi that we thought was going to be this Messiah that was going to free us from Roman oppression, and he didn't. Um, and so it took him a while. But then what they would do is they came up with all these stories about healings afterwards. They would write little books about it. And then in that books, one of the things that they would develop is this idea of a resurrection, because why not? And these writings would take place so far removed from the actual events that there's no way to actually verify it. If you actually approach them and said, well, who do we talk to about this? Oh, most of the people died already. Oh, bummer. But you could take our word for it. That kind of sounds shady. It sounds like Shady Andrew might have written it, right? So I, I don't know if I can buy into that. This is one of the objections for it. People told stories. Those people told stories. By the time these things were written down, all the eyewitnesses are dead. They're making out Jesus to be somebody he never claimed to be and making out to be somebody he never actually was. Or to summarize it in just like a one-sentence thing, if you were to write this thing down, written accounts were too far removed from actual events to be accurate accounts of actual events. Listen, if you've ever thought that, if you've ever read something about this, if you've ever, even as a Christian who believes but sometimes wonders, and this kind of like resonates with you, like, yeah, I mean, that does, that does kind of take into account a few things. Or um, how do, if, if all we use to justify the resurrection are the verses in Scripture, if the Bible's vouching for the Bible, isn't that kind of circular reasoning in that way? How do we, how do we get around that a little bit more? So 
I want to explore this a little bit further. I want to, I want to explore the distance between what was written and when the uh, evolution, if you will, of the teaching of the resurrection. Was it far off? Was there a huge space where that would make sense? And all of a sudden we have to question, the, the, or is it closer? The, the, here's the goal. If I can get it closer to the actual date of, of Jesus's death, if we can talk about how recent the teachings of Jesus' resurrection came out, not as a result of 40 years of evolution or 50 years of, well, this is going to make sense and now it's unprovable. If I can get it nice and close, what I can show you is that the centrality of Christian teaching almost immediately was the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to talk about Paul real quick. Paul was uh, pretty famous. Uh, most of you probably know about uh, Paul, even if you're not really a, a church person. Um, you know that he wrote lots of things in the New Testament. He wrote letters. That collection of letters was captured by the early church. They became known as the book of Corinthians and Thessalonians and Colossians and Ephesians and Galatians, all of those things. And Paul has... Um, uh, lots of churches named after him. Lots of popes have been named after him. He's a pretty famous character in the eyes of Jesus. Scholars across the board, religious, non-religious, all believe that a guy named Paul actually existed, right? This is not up for debate. There's not like, well, I don't really think there was a historical Paul. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah. And there's definitely a guy named Paul who actually existed, who had interaction with an early church, early Christianity, who seemed to have gone on some different journeys and planted some different churches and wrote letters to them, letters which they considered to be valuable enough to keep to pass along to others, which would eventually be canonized by the early church in about 400 AD as part of the New Testament um, scriptures, right? <clears throat> they all believe that. They all, a lot of, a lot of secular um, historians believe that actually Paul had more influence over early Christianity than Jesus himself did based on his interactions with the church and the outside advisor role that he took on kind of his, his little thing. He wrote um, supposedly 13 letters in the New Testament. So 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament were written by a guy named Paul. Now, immediately, there's some pushback by, you read a book by a guy named Bart Ehrman, or you've read a story, or New York Times came out with something, or you bought one of those Time magazines where it's like the, the hidden letters of Paul, right? And you read through these things, and somebody really smart comes out and says, well... We don't actually think that Paul wrote all of those. We think that perhaps um, somebody wrote as a ghostwriter for Paul, attached his name to it, because the grammar's different, the writing's different, the content's different. He wouldn't say this in Galatians and then this in Ephesians. Those things kind of are different. And so whether or not there's, there's disputed letters of Paul and then there's unquestioned letters of Paul, okay? Everybody believes that Paul existed. Everybody believes that he wrote some letters. Not everybody believes on which letters are legit. However, there are undisputed letters of Paul. This is pulling, and this is... Um, this is pulling from, look at like the, the most uh, liberal out, outlook in terms of Christian authorship. Nobody really denies the authorship of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. I'm a little bit more conservative. I think he wrote a bunch of the other ones, not maybe not all of them, but a bunch of them. But for, from even Bart Ehrman in his book Forge agrees. All right, listen, not a Christian. I'm a historian. I cannot deny that Paul existed. I cannot deny that he wrote a few of these things. Now, I want to look at a passage in one of these, un and I, I bring this up because I'm going to talk about what Paul wrote about, and I want to make sure that you know that this is unquestionably Pauline material, okay? First Corinthians was written in about 55 AD. It was part of a kind of a succession of letters. We know that he wrote first and second Corinthians. It feels like that there was probably a letter in between those two because he makes some references to some things, but that wasn't collected for uh, the church. But he, we know that he wrote it in about 55 AD. There's some content in 1 Corinthians that I want to talk about to show you how early on 
the resurrection of Jesus was taught as a principle that is central to the faith, okay? Uh, Verse 1 says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. There are four examples of a past tense verbiage in this thing, right? I want to remind you. If I'm reminding you, that means that at some point I've already told you this. I preached. I had come here before and preached it to you, which you received, and you have taken your stand. So four examples of him saying, I have already come to you prior to this, and this, is already, this has already occurred. Um, basically, I've already visited you, and we know that he went and visited, he would leave and then write these letters back and forth. So what we know is that he wrote this letter in about 55. He was, went and visited Corinth for the very first time in 52 AD. So back to our timeline real quick. We know that we can push this back to 52. So in 52 AD, we know that at, that at this point, what we're going to talk about when it turns to the centrality of resurrection took place at least as early as this. Now, here's what you also need to know. Jesus was crucified somewhere between 30 and 32 AD. We don't have the exact dates for that, but that's the window that non everybody, every non-secular, non-religious secular scholar believes that there was an actual Jesus of Nazareth who actually was killed by Romans. We don't claim his divinity status. We don't claim any of that, but we do know he was publicly crucified um, using the crucifixion thing, which is a very um, uh, kind of rare, but, but reserved for the ultimate traitors, ultimate capital punishment, a very public um, humiliation to kind of set the tone like, listen, you don't rebel against Rome. So right here, we're, de- we're working with about a 25 to 23-year gap, but reverse it by about three years because we know he visited at one point and says, here's the thing I told you when I visited you. So we know that the content was at least now about 22, uh, 20 years old uh, as a result of this. Not 50, not 60, not 100 years later, not after everybody all died off and you can't kind of go visit them and do this. He, he continues on. Uh, verse 3, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance, meaning this was not like a fringe teaching. This was not, I didn't, you know, maybe or maybe not, I got around to this. This was the thing you lead with. This was the central core gospel of of all of this. What I'm about to tell you um, and, and remind you of was the main thing that I taught when I was there. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. And this, again, this is not anything new. This is, we're all on board with this. We all agree with all of this. And then he was uh, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that's where we kind of diverge in terms of, okay, well, I'm religious and I'm not religious. I believe this or I don't believe this. Um, I I, I get all that. Um, And on this point, too, so what we've we've seen, so, so what we've seen so far is he, he taught, central to my teaching is that he died and that he rose again. We also know, let's go back to our timeline real quick, that later on he would talk about a place called Cyprus, and he would say, I'm telling you, Corinthians, I'm telling you the same thing that I told the people of Cyprus. We know from his missionary journeys, he went to Cyprus. He never wrote a letter um, to them or anyone that was recorded for us, so it didn't make it into the New Testament scriptures, but we do know he visited, and he visited about 44 AD. And if he said here, I said the same thing to, I'm saying the same thing to you that I said to them, we can now push this back because it's not a fringe teaching. It's core and central to what he taught all the way to 44 AD, which, which, uh, moves our dates even closer. So now we're only about 14, 12 to 14 years set aside from Jesus' death and resurrection to where this is essential teaching. This was not an accident. This was not filtered in later. He says, no, this was a big deal. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. I'm going to finish this. It's not going to be on the screen um, after this, but 
um, verse, uh, sorry, verse, verse 5. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. In other words, I met with, uh, the, the reason I know this is because I met with Peter. Cephas is uh, the formal name for Peter. Um, and, and then he says, and then I met with James, who happened to be the brother of John. And I know based on their testimony that Jesus appeared to 500 people, not just to these two, not just to a handful of people. Don't worry about it. Trust us. He appeared to us. He's like so many people. And you can even try, take, buy yourself a bus ticket to Jerusalem. Go find some of them and ask them for yourself if you don't believe this to be true. Now, let's focus in on Peter and James for a second. He says, I got this information from Cephas and from James. When did he meet with them? When did he talk to them? Well, here's what we know. In Galatians, he's writing a letter to the church in Galatia. He writes about a meeting with James and with Peter. Verse one or verse 18 of chapter 1. Then after three years, after three years of what? After his conversion, he talks about his conversion. He's trying to establish his apostleship or the reason why he um, converted. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Here's what we know about this meeting. This meeting took place again, three uh, three years after um, he had converted. It took place in about 40 AD. Um, So that's about eight years, uh, eight uh, eight to 10 years after um, Jesus was resurrected. And in that moment, what we insinuate or we infer from this, and this is a little bit more debatable, but where did Jesus or where did, uh, sorry, where did Paul hear about the story? Where did Paul hear from Peter and James about the resurrection of Jesus? Probably in this meeting, eight to 10 years after it happened, Paul writes about how I got this information from them. They told this to me, which means that Peter and James are already in Jerusalem talking about the resurrection that close to the events in which it occurred. Now, if all we had were the Gospels, you might be able to make an argument that, well, you know what? John was written in about 100 AD, 90 to 100 AD. Mark, Luke, Matthew, all those were written somewhere between 60 and 80 AD. That's kind of a long time away from the actual resurrection. It could, be, um, it could be them making up stories to better advance themselves. It could be a game of telephone, how things get lost in communication. But then there's Paul. And what Paul says was, listen, early on, like years, a couple of years after I met or after I, I converted, I met with somebody who taught me that the core and the deposit of Christianity is faith in a resurrected Savior. This was not something that was developed late. This was developed early because it happened. Not like let's come up with something that would make sense for us, that would advance us monetarily or make us famous. Most of them would die for this belief. Now, there's more to it than just even this. This part that I just read you, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In addition to kind of laying it out, it also, if you read it, sounds kind of like he's definitely going into something. I passed along to you uh, as a first importance, then there's a colon, and then there's a phrasing, all right? And if you read in your scriptures, in your Bible, it, it may even kind of set aside the formatting of this thing, because most theologians believe that what he's quoting here is a sort of creed. 
Now, um, you maybe have come from a more liturgical church or a more traditional church uh, background where they actually practiced creeds. There was an Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and you came here and you're like, why don't you guys do creeds here? And the reason that we don't is, well, I don't know. Here, here's, here's what they are. Though. Let me explain for you. I, I, know, I know why we don't. Creeds are carefully crafted memorable phrases that help communicate information accurately. The church in its early days were dealing with a highly illiterate group of people who could not read or write. So for a church to be like, here's a Bible, study, and learn what it means, learn what Jesus did for you, they'd have been like, I don't know what to do with this. So how do you train people who are, are illiterate and can't read? You make up songs that are memorable. You make up phrases or poems that have sort of a flow to them, a rhythm or a rhyme to them that are easily memorable. You craft them carefully to communicate information in an accurate way. Uh, a modern-day equivalent is, is called a uh, mnemonic, for, uh, mnemonic device. Sounds like demonic, but it's different. But you can remember it like that. Um, so that's mnemonic right there. Mnemonic device. Here's the definition of that. Any learning technique that aids information retention or retrieval in the human memory. And right now you're practicing on how to pronounce mnemonic, which is fantastic right there. But you've, you've learned this as a kid. Remember in high school when you would come up with phrases? You're trying to remember something in terms of like, even like the, uh, the kingdom phylum class, a genus species type thing. You come up with King George always likes to, you know, whatever it is. I can't even remember. I screwed the whole thing up. But that's, you're, you're trying to take the first letter of it and you make some other phrase, but it helps you remember what you're supposed to remember. You do this with your kids. Before your kids can read or write, when they are illiterate, you're trying to say to them, you're trying to teach them the alphabet. You don't put a list of, here's 26 letters, you know, remember all of these. That'd be overwhelming for a kid. So what do you do with your kid? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, N, Z, say, right? You're, this is, that's a mnemonic phrase. That's a non, mnemonic device. You're trying to get them to remember something, and so you put it in a rhythm and in a song for them to remember. In the same way, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 reads a lot like that. In the original Greek and with a few tweaks, even in the English, let me read to you some of the phrases that come out of this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. In fact, we're all going to say that out loud on three. Ready? One, two, three. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died uh, for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Now, if I read that to you about three or four more times, I could take that off the screen and most of you would get it. Not all of you. Not all of you. We'd have to, there'd be some extra work for a few of you. That's fine. But for most of you, for most of us, we would get it. And for the, a long time, that's how the church operated. And so what theologians believe is that 1 Corinthians 15 was actually one of these, that Paul quotes a little bit of, of this. Now, how could you quote a mnemonic device, or how could you quote a song that is supposed to be like a creed, that's going to be something that's remembering, um, uh, that, 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 that if it was the first time he was introducing it, it would be like, hey, I'm going to teach you something. But he's reminding them, read his letter, like, I'm reminding you of something that I taught you while I was there. And it's as if he goes into this, which means that it was already in place. What we have in scripture right here may be one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church. Theologians believe this was the thing that like got started early on, like right after the whole resurrection of Jesus as the early church huddled and said, what are we going to do? How do we explain this? How do we get this message out? How do we do it with accuracy? How do we expand the church into all of these uttermost parts of the world and make sure that what's being taught over there is actual truth based on who Jesus was? 
Let's come up with an early creed. And let's just teach him, listen, you don't have to know a bunch of politics about church. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. If that is true, and if that appears in 55 AD, and that was a common enough song or creed or rhythm or, or poem or whatever, that has to mean that it came earlier than that. Otherwise, these people would be like, what are you teaching us? What are you going with? Listen, does this prove Jesus' identity or divinity? No, it doesn't. Does it prove his resurrection? No. The point of it is I'm trying to show you how early on this developed. This was not a classic machination over a long length of time. This was something that was immediate. Paul's letter is evidence that people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus die actually believed he rose from the dead. Paul's letter proved the resurrection of Jesus was not a product of decades of oral transmission. His letter proves belief in the resurrection was documented while some eyewitnesses were still taking interviews. Listen, this, this was so immediate. This was such a natural response for them. And when you read through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, it says, like, almost immediately. Like, so Acts chapter 1 is Jesus ascending into heaven, giving them, like, this endowment of power, right? Like, I'm, I'm bestowing on you this ability to be able to go out and preach the gospel to the world. Three chapters later, Peter and some of the apostles find themselves in the marketplace, and standing up on, like, picnic tables, and shouting out and, like, crazy stuff, you know, to all of these people, um, hey, Jesus was the savior of the world. He's the Messiah, and you killed him. And, and, and all of this points out to this, not like this very general, like all of you. I'm like, it feels like he's like pointing out singularly. Alex, David, Kyle, you guys killed him. You know, it's very intentional. He doesn't use names, but it, it, it feels very personal to the point where people are like offended at this. You killed him but he rose again three days later. The Jewish leaders would be like, what is this teaching? Like we already, we thought we were done with this whole Jesus thing. He's dead. Why are we bringing this back up? Oh, they concocted this story about he rose from the dead. Oh, how classic for this. They bring them all in. Hey, shut up. Stop teaching about this. Stop talking about this. Quit making this a big deal again. And all of them said, we will not we cannot. This is what they said. We, it's not that we will not. We're not choosing not to. We cannot deny what we have seen. We know the, how ridiculous this sounds. If we were to try and, like, continue this whole process, we, there are much better ways. Listen, we've thought through this. We could come up with, well, he ended up writing a book, and we have one copy of it, and so come hear what we have to say about it. That makes more sense. What we're doing is so ridiculous in nature, we get it, but we cannot deny what we have seen. We watched our Savior die on a cross, and we had breakfast on the beach with him three days later. And it sounds outrageous, but it's true. Days, days later, the central teaching of the early church was the resurrection of Jesus. Not he was a good person, we're so sad to see him go. Not, let's not forget all the miracles that he did and the teachings that he did. Nope. The central teaching of Christianity was somebody died, but he didn't stay dead. So what does that mean for me? How does it, and this is a great modern day question. All right, even if it is true, what does the meaning of resurrection have for somebody like me? Why is this even important? Important. The resurrection validates Jesus' life and his teaching. We know that. If somebody rose from the dead, I'm going with that guy. 
I'm in. Listen, if you've risen from the dead, I'd love to meet you after service. We need to hang out. I need to be your friend. You know what I mean? I go with the guy who figured out my greatest fear and overcame it. If Jesus rose from the dead, it validates his life and his teaching and his radical message and strange story offers the likeliest reason in all of recorded history that one of three things. Number one, that God loves us. That God loves us. If you have ever lived with a sense of, well, I'm not really like a religious person, but I feel like if there is a God that exists, I feel like he's a God of love. And I feel like he really loves me because I'm a pretty decent guy, and he'd be lucky to have me on his team. If you operate with a sense of God loves you, where did you get that, that mentality? Where did you get that thought? Where did you get that idea? You did not get it from ancient religions. You did not get it from, from the Greek God system. Gods were anti. They, they, they didn't care about you. you were, the, the idea of a God is a God of love came from what Jesus said about it. If we believe that Jesus is true, or if we believe that the resurrection is real, it validates his teaching. And what, was one, what were some of his teachings? Everything that we know about God in terms of love comes from Jesus. So it validates the idea that God loves us. Number two, he loved the world so much that our sins will eventually be redeemed. And number three, that our suffering will make sense in the end. If what he says is true and his message is real, he offers the likeliest reason in all of recorded history that God loves us, that he loved the world so much that our sins will eventually be redeemed and that our suffering makes sense in the end. That is the message of Easter. That is the gospel, which is the good news of Christ. God loves you. Your sins will be redeemed. And one day your suffering will make sense. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this Easter that you would make some of that come true for us. For those of us who believe, just a, a, a re-engagement in this, and a, a new sense of wonder. For those of us who wonder how anybody could believe in this, um, may you open us our, our minds up to um, uh, the, the possibility of this. Let us, let us wrestle with this. Let us, let us not settle any longer for uh, arguments that say, well, this was just developed over a long period of time, and you can see how these things would work, and this... The, I pray that we would challenge ourselves to take, to relook at the evidence, knowing that we can never prove something, but we can look at it and say, what's the most likeliest explanation? The most likeliest explanation is that, uh, at least from the early church standpoint, that you did raise from the dead. And if that's true, then it validates the things that we care about most in this life. That one day we'll be fixed, that, we'll be, that we know that we're wrong, but we'll be redeemed, that you love us, and that our suffering will make sense in the end. Give us the wisdom to know what to do uh, and how to apply this in our personal life and the courage to act on in your name. Amen.